Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. My guest today is Fernanda Peary. Fernanda is a professor of the anthropology of law at Oxford University. She is the author of Peace and Conflict in Ladakh, The Anthropology of Law, and her most recent book, which we are discussing today, The Rule of Laws, A 4,000-Year Quest to Order the World. Fernanda, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Of course. Can you set the stage for the listeners uh, about how you came to write this book and and what it's about generally? It's very sweeping. Indeed, it's sweeping. As um, it's really a global history of law, a rather ludicrously ambitious attempt to tell the history of the world's laws all four thousand years, whole world in a single book. And as I say to my non-law friends, the advantage of reading this book is that you'll never have to read another book on law again. But seriously, it, it, it came out of, I suppose, a sort of long-standing interest in laws in other parts of the world. Um, so I started off doing my own research in contemporary Tibet. I got more interested in, in historical Tibetan laws. As an anthrop- anthropologist, I was also interested in comparing different laws from around the place. So things just really sort of spiraled out from Tibet to more general comparison to then taking interest in laws, you know, way back to Mesopotamia 4,000 years ago. Why did you title it the rule of laws rather than the rule of law, the familiar phrase? Oh, uh, yes. Well, because, <laughs> I mean, the rule of law is such a contested concept, um, you know, it's quite an ideological concept. We tend to think of the rule of law as being something that every nation state should have in the modern world. There's lots of debate about what it means and what it should be. And I didn't really want to get stuck on those issues. It's not really about those debates. So, I mean, the rule of laws was meant to be just a sort of slightly tongue-in-cheek take on that idea and, and to indicate that this is a book about law everywhere. You know, it's an expansive vision. So what is law exactly, and how does it differ from norms or other kinds of rules in general? Oh, well, that's, that's, a, that's a very good and very contested question. I mean, let me start with my own fieldwork in Ladakh. I, for my doctorate, I went up to a small village in, um, in the Himalayas, and I was interested in the way in which they resolve conflicts. And it seemed to me, over the course of the year that I spent there, that they did very well without any law at all. They didn't write anything down. They didn't have a village constitution. They didn't have any uh, precedents. They didn't write, write down case reports. So I was inclined to talk about this as a, a village that maintained order without law. But then colleagues of mine in anthropology said, no, 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 they've got customary law. It's just a different type of law. And that itself raised a big debate. You know, what is law? What are the boundaries of law and custom? And it seemed to me after a lot of thought and and reading and writing over a number of years that it is important to draw a distinction between formalistic, explicit, written rules and the sort of informal norms by which people often in practice live. And so even though people can use the word customary law very generally to refer to norms, the norms people live by, 
there's something dis- specific and distinctive that people do when they make rules explicit, when they write them down or chip them on stones or press them onto clay tablets. And so my focus in this book is on that type of quite self-conscious explicit lawmaking. So in this sense, writing, explicitness, formality, this is a distinctive feature. How do you think about the distinction? It seems like there, there could be cases where law is formally written down, but widely unfollowed and ignored, you know, like certain speed limits or, or uh, you know, any number of, of safety regulations that if you've ever worked in a restaurant, you know, like you're supposed to wash your hands like three times a minute or something. Nobody does that. As opposed to informal, unwritten rules that are very heavily enforced through social pressure or widely, widely followed. Is one of those more law-like than the other because it's written down or because it's less followed? Or what? Do you, how do you think about that? Exactly right. So it's the rules that are written down, or at least made explicit, which are more law-like, even if they're not actually followed. And so, and that accounts for a lot of the laws I discuss in the book. Uh, a lot of the ancient laws, which we find, you know, chipped onto great stone slabs or written out on precious papyrus, don't ever seem to have been enforced. And um, so, if we think about law as just being what people do, then these are very odd forms of law. But if we focus on law in terms of explicit rules, then we can ask different sorts of questions. Well, why did people write them down? What were they for? What did they mean? What did they symbolize? Why were they important? So it's those sorts of laws that I'm really interested in in the book. So why did people initially start writing down laws in ancient Mesopotamia, which is presumably the first we have clear evidence for, right? Exactly, exactly. Well, good question. And I think there's no definitive answer to this. But it does seem as though they were part of the rulers' promises of justice to their people. So the very first laws you find combined with general statements about how the ruler, the new king, maybe a warlord who's just conquered a new city, he makes these grand promises of justice to his people. You know, it, it's almost like saying, look, I know I've just, you know, deposed your ruler and taken over your city, but believe in me, you know, I will guarantee you justice. You know, no longer will the rich will be able to take advantage of the poor, et cetera, et cetera. The sort of hearts and minds type statement. So laws were made in that context. So it looks very much as though they were sort of trying to illustrate the justice that the ruler was promising his people. So even if they weren't actually applied explicitly, they're more like sort of statements, statements of intent, really, statements of of, of what a good ruler the new king was going to be. And at some point, I imagine that these written promises did start getting followed more is it, is it the case that early on, they mostly were just statements of intent and, you know, good feelings, like a State of the Union address or something? I mean, it's difficult to say because there are quite a lot of, of case records from Mesopotamia. You know, they used, used styluses to press marks onto clay tablets. And those clay, clay tablets have survived in there hundreds and thousands in the, in the dry climate of what's now Iraq. And there's very little correspondence between the records of cases and what the rules say. So it certainly looks as though the rules were sort of setting out some general principles. So probably sort of solidifying the sorts of approaches that judges were taking. They were making distinctions between different types of different classes of citizen or the right sort of thing to do on a divorce or with orphan children or um, in cases of debt. So they probably did entrench and solidify certain important social principles. But I don't think we should think of them as being sort of directly applied the way our judges apply rules today. 
So some ancient laws or rules, like the Ten Commandments, for instance, are just straight commands. They're just Mm. straight mandates. You know, thou shalt do this, shall not do this. But a lot of the Mesopotamian ones, right, they, they actually specify consequences, don't they? Exactly. And also in the Old Testament. So in the book of Exodus, which records Moses going up to the mountain and receiving the Ten Commandments, he also gets his list of rules, much more social rules. And there's clear correspondence between the rules in the book of Exodus and the rules from much earlier periods in Mesopotamia. There's clearly some continuity in that tradition. So the Israelite scribes were clearly knew about the Mesopotamian tradition and, and were following it. And that included following that form, you know, if you steal somebody's livestock, then you must repay this much or this much. If you kill somebody, but it was an accident, then you won't be punished for murder. You know, those sorts of if-then rules. And even in those cases where it's not just a straight command, it's the if-then form, the casuistic form, even in those cases, it's mostly just setting the stage or giving inspiration to the public. They don't seem to have been followed very strictly. Probably, yes. So certainly in the case of the uh, laws in the book of Exodus, they look like, I mean, there aren't very many of them. They don't try and be comprehensive. And it sort of looks as though they're dealing with problematic exceptions. You know, so everybody knows that killing is bad and theft is bad and injury is bad and must be compensated for. But the rules tend to deal with the problematic cases where there's an argument about um, self-defense or it's an accident or, you know, different types of injury. So it's as if the rules were, or what the scribes bothered to write down with the sort of problematic cases. So they probably were followed. They probably represented sort of an attempt to make clear what people had to do in these in these difficult situations. They probably were followed, although we don't know for sure. In the ancient codes of Mesopotamia and I think China and a lot of other ones, there is a feature that jumps out at a modern reader that the punishments prescribed were often different and dependent on the status of the offender and the relative status of the offender and the and the victim you would get you know a, a lesser a lesser punishment if you were a high status person and a greater punishment if you were a low status person and and this wasn't like you know people might say oh well that's true today and to the extent that it's true today it's it's something that's hidden and informal and you would never say out loud you would be ashamed to just say well you can't punish me as much because i'm wealthy you would just hope that you could quietly get away with it. But it's written down back then, and it was presumably there's no shame about it. Everyone just knew if you're, yeah, if you're the right type of person, you deserve a lesser punishment. Was this pretty much ubiquitous in all more ancient forms of law? Oh, no, that's an interesting question. Um, it's certainly very widespread. Um, so yes, Mesopotamia, they had a fairly a fairly um, shallow hierarchy of sort of aristocrats and freemen and, and slaves. Um, China, similarly, of course, India had the caste system, and that was very heavily represented in the laws. And that's lasted you know, longer than most of these, these class systems elsewhere. Let me see. The Israelites, no, they distinguished between slaves and members of the Israelite tribes or outsiders and members of the Israelite tribes, but they didn't have an explicit social hierarchy in the same way. 
I'm having to think through these one by one. So in Rome as well, Roman citizens, there was a real sense of citizens being roughly equal. And actually the laws gradually eroding the distinction between the traditions and the, and the plebeians. Although, again, as in all of these societies, there was a class of slaves that were different. So common, but not everywhere. Um, I'd say so, yeah. Is there a time period uh, in, maybe not globally, because this wouldn't happen at the same time everywhere, but just say maybe take in the West, where those kinds of formal distinctions really start to fall away? Mm. Maybe setting aside the case of slavery. Yeah, I'm not sure whether European laws, you know, there were so many of them in the Middle Ages. I'm not sure though, I can't think of any examples that really insisted on a social hierarchy of the way of the one you were describing. So I think, you know, following the fall of Rome and then the establishment of different types of kingdoms in the Middle Ages, I think we we see a much less um, explicit, at least, insistence on that type of social hierarchy. Although in practice there were a feudal system and there were there were very hierarchical relations between lords and uh, lords and commoners. But they sure. see that quite so explicit in the laws. What's the relationship between law and the state? You you go over a lot of different legal systems, and I think someone who hadn't gotten into this field at all might be confused that you talking about the legal systems of maybe traditional societies that lack anything like what we would see as a modern nation state. What's the relationship between law and the state? Do you need a state to have law? What do you want to say about that? Yes, well, that's a very important theme in the book, that laws have arisen in all sorts of different societies with different types of political structures. And it it is very easy to think of law, I mean, because nowadays nation states are everywhere. And most laws we are familiar with are national legal systems. And so there's a territory, there's a government, there's a sense that there's a a systematic set of rules and a legal structure and a system and courts and everything. And there's, you know, if you're in that territory, you're under that set of laws. So it's a very strong image we tend to have in our minds about what law is. But that breaks down very quickly if we go back in time. And so one of the things I really wanted to do in this book was illustrate the different types of society in which laws have emerged. So I suppose most strikingly different from state systems have been the religious legal systems, which have had no boundaries and where the the laws were not the, um, the preserve of the political classes. So in Hindu India, for example, it was the Brahmins, the ritual specialists who made the laws. And their laws were um, not subject to political boundaries. They spread throughout South Asia into Southeast Asia, across very a lot of different political divides. And it was sort of similar in the Islamic world. Again, it's the religious scholars, the specialists, who were the lawmakers, or the, or at least the experts in law. In those cases, were the religious scholars also the ones doing dispute resolution? Were they also like the judges in those cases, or primary, more more like decentralized legislators? Mostly, it was judging was a political activity. So in India, it was the kings who. Uh, 
convened the courts, although they often looked for advice on what the law was and as a procedure to the Brahmins, the ritual specialists. Same thing in the Islamic world, the, the caliphs, the, the political leaders, had their own courts and where the qadis, the judges, would sit. But they would often take advice from the, from the religious specialists. And individuals with legal problems would often go directly to the religious specialist, to the mufti. So there's another example of a system, a, a, a legal system that spread very widely across political borders, not associated with any single state. What are some common differences that religious law has from other, other types of law? Is it born of advice about things that we wouldn't consider law-like? Like a lot of law take, you know, is about resolving disputes or, or you know, things like murder or theft. And a lot of religious law seems to be about things like cleanliness and purity and holiness. Exactly. A lot of religious laws don't make a distinction really between law, religion, and morality. And the laws govern all three things. So I'm thinking about uh, Jewish laws, certainly the the, the oldest um, laws of the Israelites, um, Hindu laws, the Dharma Shastras, and the Islamic laws. They tend to be centered on the individual, giving guidance to individuals about how to live good lives in moral terms, in ritual terms, religious terms, as well as in legal terms. So all of those systems encompass uh, social disputes, give um, rules about contracts and disputes and crimes and so on. But that's all part of a much broader system of moral guidance, I suppose, which is more directed at individuals and helping them lead good lives, rather than being directed at the state and how to ensure peace and good order within a political system. Do you think that most or all legal systems share some kind of common origin? I I, I heard a different scholar hypothesize without, you know, without evidence, because evidence only goes so far back that probably all legal systems are born out of or evolved out of more or less disorganized, but then increasingly organized systems of feuding that start to be formalized. What do you think about that? Well, no, certainly not. (laughs) Some of them, yes. So there's some well-known examples, um, particularly from medieval Europe of uh, the tribes, the Germanic tribes that came in following the fall of the Western Roman Empire and had largely relied upon systems of feuding and compensation to resolve disputes among them. And those were formed the basis of a lot of the very early laws created in the early um, Middle Ages. And it's true that on the whole, those systems of feuding gave way to more state-like structures and creating laws that were to be administered by kings and king's courts was sort of part of that move towards more centralized states. But that's just one part of the world. And that certainly doesn't account for the laws that um, were created in Mesopotamia, which themselves influenced the laws that were created in Israel, which themselves influenced the laws that were created in Israel in the Islamic world. And that whole tradition also influenced the laws ultimately created in ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And then further east, you had the India and the Hindu laws, and then further east again, China. And none of those can be explained on the basis of means to to resolve feuds or to get beyond feuding dynamics. What is distinctive about common law 
compared with other forms of law that evolve primarily out of decisions and dispute resolution rather than from legal decrees? Well, the common law is, is, is a real oddity. I mean, I know for us who live in, in Britain and America, it just seems like basic because that's the law we've grown up with. But it's quite an oddity in the world's laws. Um, so most of the other legal systems I've been dealing with, the ones in you know, China and in India and Mesopotamia, to a lesser extent in Rome, but the Islamic law in the Islamic world, there were there were codes, there were there were written, explicitly written down laws, big statements. And in the common law, of course, law just emerges out of case out of case um, reports, um, with never any attempt to sort of systematize it in a single code. To some extent, that's like that's the way that law emerged in in Rome as well. It came through there was sort of parallel lawmaking, a bit like our legislation, and laws emerging out of the decisions of the judges and being sort of formalized and systematized by the jurists. Um, but it is a very sort of distinctive means of lawmaking next to all these great attempts to create codes, which, of course, what happens in, in continental Europe from about the 18th century onwards. How is it different from other forms of customary law that also have this kind of evolutionary, like, like besides the writing distinction, is there something especially distinctive about the common law tradition? Because that, that form of, you know, two parties having a dispute and ha- having it resolved through like a mutually trusted community elder of some kind whether it's a judge or a community elder, like there's something in common there, but what's the distinctive feature about common law and why isn't it more often like lumped in with all of these other legal systems? Well, I suppose the common law gradually evolved this sense of formality. So the judges formed a system. So from the late 12th century onwards in England, there were the king's courts. And so the judges... Um, formed a system, they they got to know each other. There was a sense in that they all ought to be doing the same thing. They ought to be making decisions on the same basis, even if there wasn't a, an explicit system of precedent. And so that's what sort of really helped to develop the common law as a system. And gradually more formality came into the system, partly through procedure, because the court started demanding very explicit forms of writ in order to initiate a legal case. You know, you had to make a claim in the right way, use the right words, and that determined how your case, particularly over land, could be argued out, what rights you had. Um, so, so, so a lot of the substance of the law developed in the forms of the writs. And then more, even more gradually again, systems of writing down laws emerged. And that was among the law students. You know, they were training to be lawyers and judges, and they would they would sit in court, they would write down what they heard the judges saying, but compare their notes. And that helped to sort of formalize and systematize as well. So gradually what this sort of centralized system became more and more formal and uniform and ho- homogeneous. And it became possible to to, to so think about a really consistent set of, of rules and, and norms, more or less explicit. Was it always the case that judges were very clearly spelled out like in advance who, who would be your judge or, you know, how judges get appointed? Or did that used to be a more, more informal? 
I'm thinking of a parallel between representation. Like it, I think it used to be the case that anyone could represent you in a in a case more easily. And it's not, you know, today in America, for instance, you know, you can represent yourself, but it's it's much harder. Was that ever the case in the common law system with judges where you could select your your own judge who just happened to be a practice, you know, someone who practiced law but wasn't appointed by the king or the... Well, it's always been possible to go to a mediator for parties to you know, choose whoever they want to, to mediate. But almost all legal systems that I can think of have had some formality in who can act as a judge. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think now. Certainly... That was one of the key elements in the development of common law, that you know, the kings appointed the judges. They may not have been such specialists to begin with as they are now, but there was a, an appointed group of officials who were, who, who were the judges. I'm just trying to think about elsewhere, whether it's quite so formal. I mean, in China, there were so only certain officials could act as magistrates and judges. Um, in the Islamic world as well, there were the Qadis and they were appoint, appointees for caliphs. But there it was more the people who had real religious authority were mostly those who had religious training. They were respected on religious grounds, not just on legal grounds. Hey, everyone, this is Chris Kaufman. Just want to take a quick break to tell you all I appreciate you so much for listening to the show. And it's still a new show, still a growing show. And if you want to help me out, I would greatly appreciate it. Simplest thing you could do is recommend it to a friend and give it a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Their algorithms rank the shows higher, make it more visible, make it more searchable if it has more star ratings, more reviews. So anything like that would be very, very helpful. Thank you so much. I appreciate you all. Back to the show. What's the origin of juries? Oh, now juries, that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting question. So we think about juries as being the people who decide on the facts, which essentially they are. But they emerged largely in um, England following the abolition of, of ordeals with the Lateran Council in 1215. So you know, one of the chapters in, in my book that, that covers a, a wide number of laws a wide number of legal systems, is about oaths and ordeals. Because really very much to my surprise, I found that those were some of the common features of law almost everywhere in the world. I would never have expected that before that I started. That was really interesting. Into, into all, these, in all these laws. But basic principles. So, of course, it's always a problem if you have two people and one person says X happened and the other person says X didn't happen. It was Y. How on earth do you decide the truth? If there are no witnesses or no other documentary evidence or anything. And what people all over the world have uh, decided to do was to allow some people to swear oaths. And, of course, in a very religious society, swearing an oath was something you wouldn't do lightly because you've cooled down the wrath of God or the spirits or um, laid yourself open to a miserable rebirth if you lied on oath. So people just wouldn't do it unless they were really, really, well, yes, they, 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 they basically just wouldn't do it. But almost everywhere, you had to be high enough status to take an oath. So it goes back to what we were saying about social hierarchy. There was almost always a sense that the lowest classes couldn't be trusted to tell the truth on an oath. 
And so they tended to be put through ordeals. And that was, again, pretty similar in different parts of the world. Um, people would have to put their hand into a into a cauldron of boiling water and pull out a stone, or they had to take a hot iron in their hand and walk a few steps, and then the hand was bound up. If it started to heal after a few days, they were innocent or whatever they said was true, and if not, then they were guilty. And there were various other ordeals involving plunging people into water and, and that sort of thing. Again, very surprisingly similar dynamics all over the world, or almost all over the world, as far as, as far as we can tell. And part of the rationale for this was that the judges were afraid for their own souls. So if somebody was accused of a crime and the judge was going to order punishment, especially if it was the death penalty, and the judge got it wrong and ordered punishment of somebody who hasn't committed the crime, then the judge's own soul was in peril. So that's why it was so important for the judges to be able to rely on some sort of form of proof. So somebody taking an oath, or in the case of an ordeal, there being a sort of divine sign, a direct sign from God that the person was either telling the truth or not. So part of the rationale of this whole system was that the judges could, could convict and could order punishment with some sort of certainty that you know, they weren't getting it wrong. So then when the Lateran Council in, in, 2015, in 1215 abolished ordeals, you know, they said to the priests, you can't do this anymore. That's tempting God. It's not proper Christian practice. You shouldn't have anything to do with it. Without priests, these ordeals couldn't be, couldn't be undertaken. That's when the judges, the judicial system, had to find new forms of establishing the truth. And it was after that that the jury system gradually emerged in England. And it was different on the continent where they where they went to the judicial torture, sort of inquisitorial systems, um, at least initially. I'm going to go back at some point and ask you about inquisitorial versus adversarial systems, but staying, staying on juries. So it's kind of the case that, that modern people think of juries as primarily you know, a way to defend the rights of the accused. But to some extent, are you saying it was implemented to some extent as a way of assuaging the concerns and the guilt of the judges and the juries themselves to be able to convict with a good conscience because they followed some kind of orderly procedure? Exactly. So the judges could rely on the juries to tell them you know, whether the person was guilty or not. And then the juries, if there were 12 of them and they were sure beyond reasonable doubt, that was supposed to be enough for their consciences. So this is an argument that's developed by um, the comparative scholar James Whitman. And he says that we think of the principle of beyond reasonable doubt as being a principle which is designed to protect the accused so that they should not be found guilty unless there's a very, very high standard of proof. But what Whitman argues is that originally that test was designed to protect the consciences of the juries themselves. And effectively, if there were 12 of them and they were sure beyond reasonable doubt, that was enough. Their consciences could rest easy. Was there like a persistent issue they were fearing that juries were refusing to con convict or, or that judges were refusing to convict because of this, these kinds of concerns? Exactly so. So the opposite of what we think now, trying to uh, enable more convictions and more confident convictions. That's interesting. I'm sure the form evolved gradually over long periods of time, but was it always required to be unanimous? 
yes, I, I think originally um, it was always required to be unanimous and and there were um, special special directions had to be given as they do do now in the UK um, for a jury to be able to return a majority verdict. Were they taking inspiration from you know older legal systems? Like what wasn't there something like a jury system in, in ancient Greece as well, like 200 person jury for higher profile cases or something like that? Yeah, so I suppose there's an earlier form of jury which was partly linked to oath taking. So somebody somebody of high status could swear an oath about their probity, but they might also gather a whole lot of friends and effectively people who could swear to their probity, compurgators they were called. So I suppose that's sort of like the jury. They they weren't they weren't sitting in judgment. They were more supporting one of the parties or the other. But then in Greece and also in in Rome, there was more like a jury system of actually having um, groups of groups of people having to decide on the truth or um, truth or not of a case. Uh, so yes, there were certainly certainly precedents the jury system, although they evolved in rather different different circumstances and different purposes. Do you want to say a little bit more about ordeals? That was that was such a fascinating chapter. Just this 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 broad idea that, as you said, independently seemed to develop in legal systems all over the world, where people would subject themselves to, you know, horrible pain or put their hand in boiling water or whatever. What was the rationale for the one like oaths have a straightforward rationale that you could understand from the perspective of the person engaging in the oath? You're going to call down the fury of God if you lie. In older societies, you could you could more readily assume that Probably everyone believed in this, so it was a reliable sign, at least that they're that they believe what they're saying. Was there a comparable rationale for ordeals in general? Yeah, yeah. So the rationale of the ordeal was more that God or the spirits, the divine, would give a direct sign. So if somebody took up a red hot iron bar in their hand and then the hand was bandaged up then whether it healed or not was taken to be a direct sign from God that the person was telling the truth or not telling the truth. So again, it was it was asking for the, essentially the assistance of the divine in indicating the truth or falsity of the claim that the witness was making. And this is the case as well, I'm guessing, in like trials by combat. Was that considered a form of ordeal? Yes, that was a type of combat slightly different because again, that was upper classes. People ah. people had to be high enough status to, to to have trials by combat, and so it was more about sort of testing out your honor. That was really more direct, a, a, a direct battle between the two sides rather than appealing to the divine. My interpretation of the battle was that there it was like you know the gods would assist the just cause. Because otherwise, you would think they would say, like, well, what does who's better at fighting have to do with who's innocent or guilty? Well, exactly. Exactly. Not that the other forms are, are obviously rational, but uh, the, if, if the, the appealing to the divine to come and aid or heal the hand better or something seems like it makes sense if you believe that. Was there forms of uh, were there ordeal? What were some of the ordeal types in China, in ancient China? There's not a lot of um, evidence of ordeals being undertaken in China. Um, there was certainly judicial torture from the very early stage. That was getting, you know, again, direct confession, probably the same logic. 
that in order to convict or to punishment, the judges need to be sure that the person was, was actually guilty. And so torturing a confession out of somebody was thought to be good enough evidence. I mean, again, it just, the logic seems crazy to us now, doesn't it? If you torture someone so they confess, how can your conscience be really clear when you decide to punish them? But that was enough. But there, there is evidence in Tibet of um, some of the legal codes I've been looking at from the um, 16th century, uh, 17th century. There's evidence of the use of ordeals, or at least instructions for how to use ordeals. And the same sort of thing, hands in boiling, um, boiling water, pulling pebbles out of a cauldron. And the nice thing about coming across something like that is that even though there's not a lot of evidence of how they might have actually worked in Tibet, we can go to medieval Europe, where there's a lot of evidence about ordeals. There, there's a lot of written records of actual cases, but also instructions about how they're supposed to take place. And we can see that the logic seemed very similar. So the, the medieval European stuff can help us interpret uh, what must have been going on in Tibet. And apart from anything else, we can see that probably ordeals were threatened much more than they actually took place. That's what the medieval historians think in Europe anyway. And if you look at some of the records, it might suggest that ordeals were happening all, all the time. And yet historians think that they were probably, the whole point was probably to threaten and to persuade the guilty party to confess at the last minute. So if an ordeal was going to take place, the the, the person who was doing the ordeal would have to go and live in the house of the priest for three days and being fed on bread and water and have to go to mass and say prayers. And then there'd be an elaborate preparation of all the apparatus for the ordeal. So the whole thing was a huge sort of drama. And the whole idea was that was that if the if the person was at all guilty, they would actually just be terrified into confessing. So the purpose was more fear as much as actual practice it's exactly sometimes happen that's it seems exactly analogous to today i mean in the american legal system at least if you were if you were to go by you know movies and legal thrillers or something you would think that you know every crime is settled by a jury trial and it's, it's very far from the case it's it's essentially threatened you know it's plea bargained away and only a small number of cases actually go to trial with the jury you know, it makes for it makes for good drama in a story. And it's, you know, it's <laughs> interesting to learn about. But my I don't know if that's if this same kind of thing is true in other legal systems, but it seems like that would be common that the, the more dramatic forms of deciding disputes like this or determining guilt or innocence are not actually going to be that common. Exactly. Um, you mentioned the term inquisitorial earlier. Can you say something about the distinction between adversarial and inquisitorial legal systems in the modern world or in general? Yeah, so that that's really um, a sort of common law, a civil law distinction. So the common law as it developed in Europe and, and in England and America, and the civil law systems that they developed in continental Europe. And I mean, the common law system is quite unusual in having this adversarial element, and in there being a real tradition of advocates on both sides. And again, if we've been brought up in the system, we sort of assume that. Every legal system, if the case must must be advocates on either side. But in a lot of legal systems, they were banned. So in China, for example, 
advocates were regarded as the lowest of the low and great efforts were made to, to, to stop them acting for the different parties. No real tradition of certainly professional advocates in the Islamic world or as far as we can tell in the Hindu world. So it's, it's quite an unusual feature of the common law system. And it makes the system work its way out through opposing arguments. And of course, when it works well, it's extremely good because each side has their own specialist who will put their own side of the argument. So the judge can listen to both sides and feel at the end of the day, he or she has come to really good um, understanding of the way the case can be put either way. But in the, on the continent, there's much, even though there are, there are professional lawyers, there's a much greater role for the judge who does a sort of series of investigations themselves into, into the case and what happened. So, you know, there are pros and cons to both systems. At the end of the day, I think the adversarial system is a good one. It's more elaborate. It's more expensive. So if funds are a problem, people can go without you know, really good representation and not get justice. But at the end of the day, it makes it much, much less likely that a single person, a judge who has an inquisitorial role, might be lazy, um, running out of time, a little bit careless, overlook something important. Outside of the common law, what are some other legal systems that engage in a more adversarial system? Well, ancient Rome was was the big example. You know, Cicero, his great speeches for well, both both prosecution and, and defendants. And Greece had its it uh, no, Athens had its, its tradition of advocacy. But those they're pretty rare in the terms of the whole of the world's legal systems. Though those those traditions of oratory is that a feature um, in uh, medieval Iceland? No, medieval Iceland had an extremely elaborate legal system, but not advocates. So complex systems of groups of neighbours who would get together and decide the truth of cases, local council that would decide other cases, then regional councils, then a whole island-wide council. Yeah, and this is all in the 11th, 12th centuries, but not advocates. Can you say something about your field research in Tibet? It's come up a few times, but you you did your doctoral work actually traveling to Tibet and doing original research on their legal system. First of all, what was that like, just getting to go there and, and see some of this stuff up close and personal? Well, it was great. It's one of the, one of the best years of my life, <laughs> and and the year I and the reason I decided to become an anthropologist in the first place that I really wanted to get to know another culture from the inside. So I did very traditional anthropological fieldwork. I found a village in Ladakh, which is the Indian part of the Tibetan Himalayas, and spent basically a year getting to know the village very well, getting to know the people and their internal rules, their forms of village decision-making and the way they approach disputes. So it wasn't easy talking about it because they didn't want to talk about disputes. As far as they were concerned, all disputes were bad. They were disruptions to the social order. They need to be resolved as, as quickly as possible. So to begin with, the first few months, they just didn't want to talk about them at all. But that's why anthropologists spend a long time getting to know a place and a people. They gradually build up trust and they gradually get people to talk to them about things which they wouldn't learn about straight away. 
How did they feel about you as an outsider? What was the bonding process like over time? They were amazingly welcoming. Absolutely amazingly welcoming. I was a complete stranger. And yeah, that's one of the most attractive things about their, their cultures, their traditions of hospitality. So I first went out to the village. I didn't speak much of the local language to begin with, although I learned it much better over the course of the year. So I made friends with some people working for a um, development organization in the local town who spoke English and, and Ladakhi, the local language. And they introduced me to this village because they thought it might be suitable for my work. So I went and visited with them and it seemed very nice and very suitable. Um, so I went back to the town and, and said, to them, said, yes, well, I would think I would like to go to that village. So they sent me out again. This time they weren't coming with me. So I went on my own, hardly speaking any language. <laughs> that These, these um, development workers, they wrote a letter for me to the local local family who they thought would host me, sort of explaining in Ladakhi what I, what I wanted to do. So I arrived a little bit like Paddington Bear, <laughs> you know, the seat of Paddington Bear, arriving in Peru, and Peru and Paddington Station with his letter, you know, saying, please look after this bear. That was sort of me arriving in the village. And the family were amazingly welcoming um, and put me up, looked after me for a whole year, basically, shared everything with me, even in the depths of winter when food was quite scarce. How big was this village you were staying in? Oh, about 250 people, small. Okay. What roughly was like the development level? So essentially subsistence farming. So no road, no running water, no electricity, um, largely growing their own food selling a few things in the local town, mostly literate, but not all. And the disputes that did happen, is this just ordinary stuff, disagreements, insults, uh, you know, somebody's livestock wandered onto someone else's field? What, what kind of disputes were you exactly. getting to hear about? Or, almost all that sort of stuff. They could get quite serious. Um, in one of the neighboring villages a few years ago, there'd essentially been a murder, and that had all just been sorted out at village level, hadn't gone to the local police. What does a dispute resolution process look like in, in a case like that, in a murder case? If it's your husband who got murdered or, or son or something like that, presumably mm. it's a someone close who takes the case or makes a complaint. Well, it's a village-wide process. You know, something really important that the whole village meeting will get together. And that's essentially all the adult men in the village. Some of them may not be there at the time the meeting takes place, but essentially it's a real sense of we're all in this together. We are going to decide what has to happen in this case. But even in really serious cases like that, the overwhelming idea is that everybody has to be able to get on with each other even afterwards. So the enmity and the bad blood needs to be dealt with as effectively as possible. And the households and the people need to carry on working together in the interest of the village as a whole. And, of course, you can't just get rid of, you know, really serious enmity just like that. But the sort of communal systems of cooperation effectively ensure that communal life continues afterwards. Yeah, I'm sure if something that bad happens, it's not going to go away. But I, I imagine there's a strong concern to make sure that it doesn't spread and grow very rapidly as as feuds tend to do left unchecked. Exactly. You had a really interesting, interesting point that I hadn't considered in the some of the chapters on Mesopotamian and ancient Jewish law that some of the features that we consider sounding relatively harsh today, like, you know, like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, were 
more likely meant as a as an upper bound rather than as a prescription like if someone takes your eye you must take their eye back it's rather if someone takes your eye you can't take more than their eye because that's a way of kind of stopping exactly. a feud from growing what kind of things would they do in Ladakh to try to prevent uh you know prevent the enmity from spreading are they are they doing like I don't know, like restorative circles or in, ensuring that people like talk to each other and work out their differences? What does it look like in practice? What was interesting about Ladakh in, in com- comparison with Eastern Tibet, where I did fieldwork subsequently, was there was no ethos of feuding in Ladakh. So Eastern Tibet, among nomads, was much more like the society that is represented by those laws you were talking about, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. There's really sort of compulsion to take revenge. It's almost like, you know, you have to do it for the sake of your honor. In Ladakh, just none of that. Revenge is always bad. So there's quite deep-seated moral differences here in the way people think about social relations and the right response to a wrong if somebody does take revenge or hits back or gets into a fight, you know, both people are punished because it's all bad. All the aggression is bad, whether whether it's unprovoked or, or even provoked. So there's this very sort of strong set of moral ideas which condemn aggression, which do a lot to, um, to prevent it and then also to deal with it afterwards. So the village meeting will concentrate very much on the actual aggression and the violence, you know, who did what. It was not so much who's in the right or who's in the wrong, but what level of violence did each person perpetrate? And so they have to then pay fines, but mostly to the village. It was almost like an apology to the community for disrupting the community. They're not primarily playing damages to each other. Exactly. So so there's some payment of fines to each other, but it's mainly a payment of fines to the village because it's more thought of in communal terms, as opposed to the feuding societies where these things are looked at much more in terms of relations between individuals or families. This distinction between uh, Eastern Tibet, where you saw more feuding patterns, and Ladakh, does this have something to do with, isn't isn't there some longstanding thesis about the differences between societies that evolve more from herding societies versus farming societies? Yeah, absolutely. And it's a, it's a bit of a simplistic explanation. It's never the whole story, but it does make a lot of overall sense that if you're a herder, then your wealth is in your animals. And your animals are mobile. So somebody could come along and steal them all and all your wealth is gone. Whereas if you're a farmer and your wealth is in your land, well, nobody could come and steal that, but you can steal other things. You know, the idea is that an ethos of revenge is almost like a defensive mechanism. It's almost like a warning to anybody who might steal your livestock that you will come after them and you will you will steal the equivalent or more in response. So it's sort of like a defensive mechanism. I mean, that's a theory and it's a bit simplistic, but I think it does actually hold a lot of a lot of explanatory power. What's one of your favorite memories from doing from your fieldwork? Oh, well, one of the one of the lovely things about the village in, in Ladakh was before there was a road. There is now a road. The, the village is perched on sort of halfway up a mountain. And the road that goes to the town goes down this valley. So you can see from a long way of sort of people disappear down the valley or arrive. 
So it means that all that sort of all the departures and arrivals are quite dramatic. And about halfway through my field work, some of the kids who'd been away at school, they arrived back from school. They hadn't been in the village for months. And, you know, all the mothers were out there on their rooftops looking down the valley. And then somebody could see these tiny little figures, you know, quite young, young children just toiling their way. It was a long walk from the end of the road. The last bit was really steep uphill. And that sort of sense of, you know, the dramatic arrival, you know, saying goodbye to people in train stations or airports just hasn't got, hasn't got a patch on these dramatic arrivals up and down the mountain. That's really sweet. Did it feel similarly dramatic when you were leaving? Did you have to walk this long trek as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. It's a ceremony when you leave and you pack your things on your donkey and... And people come out and pour a little bit of beer and everyone has a little drink and then off you go and the figures are up there waving at you from the roof. And Ladakh in particular, you stayed there a year, you said? I stayed there just over a year, yes. How long did you stay in uh, in East Tibet? In Eastern Tibet, I was there for the best part of the year, but it was in slightly shorter chunks. The longest time I was there, about seven months. But that was tough. That's very cold, cold during the winter. Living in a tent in the wintertime is, is tough. <laughs> Did you Have you done uh, other field work subsequently, or are you planning to do any in the future? Um, no, not particularly. I'm, I'll probably go back to Ladakh and, and see the family I lived with again. I just It's important to keep up relations, I feel. It's sort of, it's sort of payback. You know, they were so <laughs> hospitable to me. I, I need to go back and see them every few years. I haven't got any plans to go to China. It's difficult politically doing fieldwork in China, as you can imagine. Sure. Um, are there features, do you think, of older customary traditional legal systems that modern Western legal systems could learn from or benefit from? Oh, that's a difficult question because they're also context-specific, really. There's been a big push recently in both Europe and America towards more conciliation and mediation, alternative dispute resolution. And when you see these systems working well, of course, it's good that a dispute is looked at on the round and adversarial process is avoided. But in societies that are not face-to-face societies, complex, you know, rules and, and, and legal procedures are necessary, um, particularly when power relations are unequal. It's absolutely essential to have a good, fair, procedurally robust legal system. So maybe the lesson from all this is that, you know, law is important and it's been important for 4,000 years. And one of the first things that people think about when they make laws is legal procedures. And the fairness of the legal procedures is absolutely critical. And, you know, any society we live in, we have to be constantly looking at our legal system and, you know, working out how well it works. Is it fair? Is it free of corruption? Is it equitable? You know, those are questions we've just got to keep asking ourselves. Do you have any recommendations for books that you think would especially complement this work? Well, I've got a great penchant for sort of big sweeping histories, as you might imagine. Yes. Um, there's a great book. Uh, it was published about the same time as my book by the, the late David Wengrow and Dave, uh, sorry, the late David Graeber, the anthropologist, with his co-author, archaeologist David Wengrow, called The Dawn of Everything. And that's a sweeping history really about the emergence of states and pre-state structures. Um, Again, it's an anthropologist tackling some big historical um, dynamics. Highly recommended. Very readable. 
Great. I'll include that on the show notes. Do you have any upcoming projects people should know about? Well, having done this big history, <laughs> I'm now going to go back to the coalface and do some more work on Tibetan texts. And that's going to mean sitting down with some really difficult classical Tibetan legal texts and trying to work out what they mean. But I think it's important as a scholar to sort of mix the two styles of scholarship, you know, to get really stuck into some firsthand material and then to stand back from time to time and look at look at the bigger picture. Yeah, so it's very admirable. Next. It jumps out in your CV. <laughs> Where can people find you if they want to keep up with your work? University of Oxford's pretty good website. I'm there. Latest publications, whatever I'm up to, gets updated quite regularly. Uh, Twitter, I'm on Twitter. Yeah, okay, fairly easy findable, I think, Fernanda Piri. Well, on that note, my guest today has been Fernanda Piri, and her book, once again, is The Rule of Laws, A 4,000-Year Quest to Order the World. Fernanda, thank you so much for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening.